Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Certainly this false teacher displaces Christ, right? Or the significance of Christ, because this is the work of Christ. You know, does the law play into this? Yes, it does. You know, this is part of Paul's argument in chapter 2. God is, you know, he pictures here in 2.5, God will render to each person according to his deeds, and only the doers of the law will be justified. Who's saying that? Well, it can't be Paul because in 3.20, he says that uh, from the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So he's dealing with this false teacher, and I, or with a false understanding, if, if you're still holding out on a false teacher, whoever this interlocutor is, or even if it's an imagined interlocutor, this interlocutor believes that it's on, that the judgment occurs on the basis of works. What you do is the basis of judgment. And Paul's teaching is that justification comes by faith, but faith is not defined on the basis of the law, but he says, apart from works of the law. Well, he's just blown their minds because they don't have such a concept, I think. They have such a limited notion of faith. And David, I think that's what you and I are up and against, or any of us who are preaching in conservative churches. You really, I mean, I've been doing this for 10 years. I don't know that I'm communicating because it's so ingrained in people that what Jesus has done is he has he has kept the law where we can't. And therefore, by trusting in him, we, we get saved. Well, what that does is that means that Jesus doesn't set aside the law, but he accentuates it, that that is the system. And of course, with the law, we're talking about a system of retributive justice. And Matt, I, Matt Von Schuch, I think this ties into your work, into law as we have it. I think that law as we have it is not, you know, redemptive so much as is retributive. It's not remedial. Maybe sometimes it is, but it's mostly retributive. And why do we have this system? I don't know, you know, I don't know if you want to point it failed theology, but maybe that's played into it. And so the, I think that's what's happening here, that either a, this false teacher has taken advantage of their narrow understanding, Paul is simultaneously, I think, refuting where they might go in this false teaching, but he's also broadening their understanding by presenting what I think, you know, it, it is a radical gospel that we're talking about here. And so he's showing them the problem of sin, first of all, he's working on two fronts. The problem of sin is more serious than they imagined. They thought sin just pertained to law-breaking. And he's going to show them, no, it's bondage. It's, it's believing a lie. It's deception. And so actually things are worse than you imagine. But then he's going to show them, well, no, actually things are better than you imagined. Because salvation is cosmic. It's unconditional. It's fundamental. It's all-encompassing. 
And so where their faith is attached to law and transgression, the resurrection faith, uh, which Paul spells out, it's cosmic new creation. We did this last week in, in a moment of enlightenment. The way I pictured this was that we all have the Jew and the Gentile in our head, or we all have the false teacher, and this is just an illustration, that the condemning superego, the law-keeping, condemning, father-figure superego is oppressing the ego. And I think psychologically, in other words, I think that ultimately that's where we're headed with this. Paul is going to describe a psychology of sin. And, and don't misunderstand me here. I don't necessarily mean a conscious understanding. I don't think Paul or any of us are fully conscious. But we are conscious of this condemning conscience that is oppressive. By the time we get to chapter 7, that's where Paul's taking us. You know, in chapter 1 to 3, Paul has said, he's been kind of, you know, well, it's not about law and transgression. But by the time we get to chapter 7, he says, well, even thinking that it's about law and transgression, that is the problem. So he's taking them from what they may believe and saying, that's the very problem, a system of retributive justice that Christ saves us from. We're not in that system anymore. And so the terms are all, you know, changed up, justification, judgment, sin, and that's what Paul is doing. He's reworking all of this terminology in the light of the work of Christ. And by the way, he's giving us a new hermeneutic in the process. That is, he's going to, beginning in chapter 4, but throughout Romans, he's going to begin reading the Old Testament in the way that they've never heard. You know, he's going to focus in the life of Abraham on particular Old Testament passages and read it in what we might call a Christocentric manner. He's going to understand Abraham, Moses, the law through Christ. You know, judgment is not on the basis of works of the law, and sin is not concerned with bad works. And this may be their understanding, and it's not adequate. And also, by the way, you know, he in this passage that we just read in 23 to 26, he uses the term sins, and that's not Paul's normal usage. This is Lewis Martin in his book on Galatians. He runs this down and says that when Paul uses the word sins, you can be sure he's quoting somebody. His word is sin in the singular. Only This is Martin. Only when he is quoting traditional formulas does Paul speak of Jesus as having died for our sins, plural. And as long as the Roman Christians think of sins as defined by works of the law, I think which gives rise to this plural, they're going to consider the human predicament as concerned with outward works, thus circumcision. And this is why I think circumcision plays into this so much. Campbell does the thing, you know, Paul's not going to call circumcision a sign, he's going to call it a seal. And of course, the way the Jews thought of circumcision is really, Jeff, the way that you were describing the way that people understand, some people pick, picture language. In other words, circumcision is a sign that is an entry into the reality of virtue. It's only through circumcision. That's why the Jews are the virtuous people. That's why the Jews cannot be accused of those things outlined in 1.18 to 32. 
Campbell goes through Philo here. I thought that was very interesting. That circumcision is a kind of automatic benefit, you know. I think that explains partly they're they're being caught up. And of course, what we're talking about here is where we began this whole conversation. This understanding of faith in no way has primarily to do with the mind, with the individual, with you know the notion of intelligibility, with understanding. The thing that the false teacher is doing, but maybe even the things that the Roman Christians are guilty of, is what Paul, by chapter 7, is going to say is sin itself, imagining that judgment is on the basis of works of the law. That's the problem. That's not just a problem. I think for Paul, that is the problem. But of course, we need to lay that out, why that can be a universal problem, but I think it is. Uh, I just feel like I'm right on the verge of catching something. So circumcision is a sign that points to the virtuous, like a virtuousness, according to the false teacher. And sins, plural, like individual sins, would we say, would, would they, would he also say, those are signs that are pointing to a condition of some kind? Because in my mind, it's like, is the, that whole idea that there's a, 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 a semiotics almost that is based on the lie. Like the lie is that you can tell, you know what, if you have, if you do this, then that's, this means this. And it, it just is a direct correlation and that what Jesus is sort of blowing up in that is, well, I guess it's I, the apocalypse is that it's not at all what we think it is. I'm still not quite clear on what it actually is, but uh, is that is that a long, is, am I kind of on the right? I, I like that, and, and I've actually done a piece on semiotics in the church. Oh, okay. uh, I, I think that that's really what is being cha changed up is the very, our, the function of language is being changed up here, and the function of signs is being changed up here. So that the way that, you know, well, first of all, in a, in the Jewish understanding, or at least in this false teacher's understanding, you know those Gentiles are not virtuous by they do not bear the sign. I mean, we might do this, you know, think of Christian, uh, you know, somebody tells us that, yeah, I accepted Jesus into my heart. I'm, I'm a Christian. In other words, we, we can almost do the same thing. <laughs> we can picture Christianity or baptism on the order of the sign of circumcision, that this is a kind of automatic entry into virtuosity. But of course, what we're describing right now is, oh, wait a minute, if they've missed what righteousness truly is, they may bear the sign. I think this false teacher is calling himself a Christian, and Paul is saying, you don't qualify, buddy. Circumcision then is a kind of sign of the heart. It, it's attached directly to the virtuosity of the heart. And so I think as a Jew, you can be assured that you're not going to have the sexual problems that these Gentiles do. And that I think that's why Paul is quoting this. He's actually a, a thing very much, very similar that, that you find in a lot of Jewish literature. First of all, tying together idolatry and sexual perversity and lack of circumcision well we all know those three go together and if you're circumcised you don't have the problem with idolatry you don't have the problem with sexual 
uh, immorality, uh, that you're virtuous and your desires then are under control. I don't know. I don't know if I address your question. Your, your question was a wonderful question, and certainly it is the case that that signs semiotics is being changed up. And I think in one instance, what we're talking about is language that is objectified. I think this is what we do with language. In other words, what I just described as happening in justification theory, in my understanding, that's not just the problem of justification theory. That is the human problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That we would attach, in other words, we would attach, we would reify language, human language. I think that's what we would reify the sign. That's what's happening in circumcision. But of course, the sign is just a sign. When we talk about Jesus as the Logos, we're talking about a person. And so I think that's the shift in meaning here, that faith is entry into this alternative apprehension of language. And that's not quite right, because we're not really talking about language. We're talking about Jesus. We're talking about personhood. We're talking about meaning, that we can think of the world of meaning in terms of a grammar. You know, this is Paul's accusation that the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Your, your question, Jeff, is the question. But our relationship to language, when I say it's a relationship to law, but yeah, you understand language per se is actually the symbol system that we're talking about. And taking the symbol system per se as salvific, isn't that what we're always guilty of? And in a, in a Christianity that reduces to propositionalism, doctrine, law, you know, well, that's just what people always do. So I, I don't see this false teaching as peculiar. And I think this is what Paul is saying by Romans 7. This is the human sickness. This is the disease that we all have. I mean, you could think about this just in terms of a neurotic and the compulsion to repeat. The, the tendency to, to get a, a word or a set of words. They, these signs, these words come to bear uh, something that they cannot bear in one way or another, either, either for evil in, in many ways. Am I seeing or am I picking up a parallel or an overlap with uh, Adam and Eve's, uh, they're put to the question, uh, if, you go that, if you go that direction, you'll be like God, you know good and evil. And hinging righteousness on the works of the law. Yes. That's what Paul's going to say, Jim, in chapter yeah. 7. I think that Paul is doing a commentary. You know, he's clearly doing that in chapter 5 when he's thinking of the human sickness, the, the sin system. I think he's referencing the story of Adam and Eve. You know, whatever the providence of this story is. I like David Bentley Hart's picture. Oh, this is just what is continually unfolding in human history. Or that, that story, he, he mythologizes it. But if that's offensive to you, the, the significance of the story is what Paul is unfolding in chapter 7 when he uses the word I. The I there, of course, is a quotation of the first sentence ever spoken by the fallen Adam. You all know the sentence? I was afraid, I ran, I hid. I think it's there at least four times. He's, he uses the word I, 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 I. 
The word I does not appear previously in the book of Genesis. The word I does not appear in Romans 8. That Paul is using the word ego to talk about this encounter. This is a universal encounter. Because when we're talking about Adam, we're talking about humanity, right? This is, I mean, just the word Adam is human, you know, mankind. Humankind, that all of humankind in Paul's understanding has this orientation that has come about in regard to the law. Is he talking about simply Genesis 3, or is he also talking about the giving of the law to Moses? Some commentators think he's doing both. I don't think it matters. I think he is talking about both. In other words, Judaism and the giving of the law to Moses is not a departure from the problem created in the transgression in Genesis. What was that transgression? The lie in regard to the law. In other words, they literally thought that through the knowledge of good and evil, through their taking up this knowledge, that they could be like gods, that they could obtain life. You know, they didn't need the tree of life, which, of course, the tree of life is just representative of God's presence. They don't really need God anymore because they have language, we can put it that way, of a new order. Their semiotics has changed up. They have a new meaning system. And so I, uh, what I didn't do, and Jim, you made me do it, is as I was describing justification theory, I think it does what sin always does. It reifies language, propositions, law. And those signs, that becomes the thing. And when you do that, we're no longer talking about faith in the sense that Paul means faith. We're no longer talking about meaning. I guess there's a kind of meaning, like one plus one equals two is a kind of meaning, but it really has nothing to do with people. And of course, that's what's left out. I think it's because Jonathan's in the room, but I just keep thinking of silence and the Fumi and the Fumi as law, that it doesn't make, you know, it doesn't make any sense. Like, there's no, no reason why, like, stepping on this Fumi means that you reject Christ. But, and, and with the people right there, right, that somehow, like, real, meaningful existence is right there, hanging upside down over a pit. And, like, the struggle of, like, us being invited to step on the Fumi in, in silence, you know, step on, like, reject this need to somehow object reify language and and sort of submit to the lie anyways that's just what i keep thinking in my head so you always do an interesting thing with this silence uh yeah by the way this of course what, what we're describing here i came to this realization what i what i'm describing to you here in japan because of the focus on language uh, and this is a, a Japanese linguist, uh, Suzuki. By definition, what is a Japanese person? A Japanese person is someone who speaks Japanese. Because the Japanese language then is definitive of what it means to be Japanese. Now, I hope you see on the surface this makes no sense whatsoever. But we're, look we're overlooking all of that. So that there is a, re a literal reification 
of the language. And then Japanese will talk about Jap the Japanese language as conveying a special spirit. And Matt, you've been doing your, what is it, your karate. And I'm sure they've been talking about key. And if you get the key right, then you can kill people without even thinking about it. I didn't kill him, I, it, just that he got in the way of my sword when I was swinging it. That is the reification of language, I think, that's happening there in Genesis. That came out in in Japan. But, of course, this is precisely what Lacan's reinterpretation of Freud and Zizek's picking up of this. But, of course, Lacan and then Zizek, they're all going to Romans 7 and saying, wait a minute. This is simply what Paul has outlined in Romans 7, that you take language, you reify it. There is a split within the self between the ego and the superego, or in Paul's language, between the law and the ego. And this sets up a uh, an antagonistic dynamism that gives rise to the destructive death drive. And Zizek just says, and I think he's right, He does a, that's what my book is. Is a, is a fairly detailed reading of Lacanian and Freudian and Zizekian psychoanalysis that is just an illustration of Paul's point in Romans 7. So yes, Jim, to, uh, that's a long answer to your question. We're talking about Genesis chapter 3. The, let me just finish with the point that Paul is then beginning in 323, reflecting their initial understanding, which, by the way, is very similar to what most, in other words, most Christians read 323 and say, yep, we can put the book of Romans down now. We, we got it. Well, wait a minute. Paul's going to move them on from that point, and he's going to focus on not just the death of Christ, but the resurrection. And by the time we get to chapter 6, that we are participants in the death of Christ. And so, Christian, you know, it's not just that we're purified. Maybe that's what they thought of, that we're, you know, we're purified from, from our sin. But we enter into a different world. And I think that's the gap that Paul is closing. And by the time we do chapter four, maybe not next week, but if our friend Jonathan Depew comes next week, it may be in two weeks we'll get to Romans four. I, I would only add that it's uh, Shaolin Kung Fu and it's Chi. <laughs> See, I was trying to get a rise from you. And you... <laughs> uh, Sounds like I missed some good stuff. Yeah, yeah, you missed. Actually, you missed everything. I, I don't know how you could go on from here. <laughs> John, uh, Father Toddy, if you could sum it up in a, in a thought or two. Justification theory is bad. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, I've I've read the, your chapter on Lacan. I've looked at a couple YouTube treatments of it. I'm I'm going to ask if you could take a short amount of time. I know we're at towards the end. Could you explain Lacan like to a fourth grader or maybe first grader? What I am saying now is an insight I've gained from reading Lacan and Zizek. And that is, I think, that what they're describing is the human sickness. But, of course, they don't think there's a cure. They just think we're sick and get over it. What is the human sickness? And they're literally going to talk about a lie or a deception as the structuring principle of the human subject. 
First of all, by liar deception, you know, maybe that in Freudian terms of fundamental fantasy. And so by liar deception, that doesn't quite get it. That's not quite right because for them, there is no truth, right? If there is truth, truth inheres in a lie. But for the moment, let's just go with that terminology because as Christians, we believe there is such a thing as a misorientation to law and language. And a way of talking about this misorientation is we believed a lie. Just think in Genesis chapter 3. You won't die. You'll be like gods. How will they be like gods? Through In and through language, in and through their knowledge of good and evil. And so they become, psychologically, we see this happening in Genesis, that there is a split that we call shame in which we objectify, we see ourselves through the eyes of another. That's the, only re that's the only way, you know, a little kid is never ashamed. You know, my grandson, he's just happy as he can be, running around naked all day, you know. Uh, but at some point, I guess it'll hit him, you know. I don't know when this sets in, but he's going to school now, so maybe, maybe he'll start wearing clothes. They live in Hawaii, so you really don't need clothes. But shame, then, is this is the point in which we see ourselves through the eyes of the other. What other? Well, through yourself. You as the other and you as the I. So when we talk about sin is a deception, sin is a, it, there is a reification. What is the deception? The deception is the reification of language. It is the closure of the individual within themselves. In a sense, that is, it is this antagonism within the self toward the self. If you just think of it in terms of Genesis, it's trading God, life, for knowledge of good and evil and death. If you want to think of it in terms of Paul's language in chapter 7, he's going to say the law serves in place of God. So that our reification of language is actually a deification. I mean, that was the original lie, is that you'll be, you'll be gods. That in and through this lie, the law, you can gain entry to the divine. So it's all there in, in chapter 7, but it's in, in my book, what I'm doing with Lacan. I, I always hope I'm making it easy. Maybe I'm not, but what is, what is the structure of a lie? Well, first of all, there's the medium of the lie. We call that language. We call that law. There is the object of the lie. We call that I, the object in the mirror, you know, ego in Paul's language, or just I. And so there's this antagonism. But what does a lie always do? In other words, the most important thing about a lie is that which does not appear in the lie, that there's something hidden here. That's death, right? The thing that is happening is a death it is a death dealing lie and what we mean by death is that split within the cell the undoing it is the shame it is the setting in of this antagonism and so the key thing is precisely that which does not appear paul calls it the body of death the law of sin and death and so those three things all appear in romans 7 the law the eye and the law of sin and death or who will rescue me from this body of death is the other way he talks about it. All that is being described is the structure 
of this deception. In a Freudian and Lacanian system, that's the only way you have a human subject. That's what an I is, because that's the way that consciousness arises. That's the way, that is the entry into speech. And there is no alternative. If you're going to a Lacanian psychoanalyst, the best you can do is try to get over yourself. And, you know, you think that as a psychoanalyst, I have any answers? That's your problem. You think there are answers. There are no answers. <laughs> that's an, a, a bit. So, yeah, enjoy your symptom. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. That's the name of one of Zizek's books, I think. Yeah. So you've got a symptom, but so does everybody. Just learn to enjoy it. Please go over the structure of deception again. So I'm just saying that any lie has three parts. The, the, the medium of the lie, I think that's the law. Nothing wrong with speech. I'm not in any way saying language is fallen. Right. The law is wholly just and good. Language is perfectly adequate. Even Christ has come to us. So I'm not it's not a language problem per se. Language isn't fallen. But the medium, language comes to bear more weight. Language per se becomes the logos. In other words, this is I think what's happening in Greek philosophical thought. But I actually think it's happening in most all all philosophical thought. We imagine we can arrive at the truth, absolute truth, through language per se. The medium is the message. Who said that? I lost the guy. Uh, and and then the, Tony and Marshall McLuhan. Yes, Marshall McLuhan, yes. And then the second part is the object of the lie. The object in this instance, the thing that we're focused on, in, in Freudian thought it is the child sees itself in the mirror and says that's me in the mirror the i wait a minute that ain't you that's an image that's a bodily image and this is the way that freud will talk about the ego there's the the ego is the bodily image and so that we there is a kind of objectification of the ego of the i the eye is not the body per se, or it's not even, you know, it's this image that we, uh, uh, that we reify the image. So there's the medium, the object, or we, we might even call the object the subject, but, but that doesn't quite get it because we're, the subject is on both sides of this. And then there is what is hidden. The, in other words, a lie is always a lie about something. It's a, an obscuring of something. Freud says there is no mortality. There is no mortality in the unconscious. Ask your little kids. They don't know about death, right? They don't even know what that is. At some level, I think that we never, that in, in our unconscious self, the reality of our own mortality, of our own limitedness, of the reality of death, is precisely what is denied. That is what's obscured. But, of course, that's also what's enacted. In other words, death is enacted, in a sense. This is the death drive. Death drive is the drive to get rid of the death drive. This thing that we do aimed at immortality kills us. In the words of Jesus, he who would save his life loses it. Our attempts at self-salvation are death-dealing. And so the passage through death. And see, this Zizek gets a real buzz off all this the Christian language. 
but he's just doing psychoanalysis. He doesn't, you know, I don't think he buys any of it. But of course, the death, the death part of Christ, that saves you. Well, of course, he means that in a very different way, because it's a kind of bringing out into the open, you know, what, what is denied in the law. Ever since Jim asked about a fourth grade explanation, I, I, <laughs> I keep uh, thinking of a word that came up for me this week is the inner critic, that in a sense, what we're describing is Romans is painting the gospel as the revelation of the fact that we are able to move from being stuck with just our old inner critic to you replace the inner critic with Christ himself, the Holy Spirit. It's a whole new thing. So your inner critic can be anything, whether it's language, law, things, your religion that's built in, you know, in darkness and society to just be religion, what religion is. Whatever it is, it becomes for you. Whether you live up to it or not, it's the inner critic that you live by, and it's kind of an agonistic struggle. So yeah, Romans 8 is the, the fuller description of what's what the alternative is that's available. Yeah. That's that's a huge help, Every all that. Can I throw you a curveball in? Sure. I'm going to just accept this as a possibility, or maybe from my own experience, that you can be in this uh, faith experience and be like Abraham, that you feel like you're on a journey. Maybe you don't have your, the bearings that you need or orientation or answers and still be participating in the faith of Christ, even though you may not see much on the horizon, but I think Christ can still be participating with you or and you with Christ. I like that. It doesn't, even the, even the journey, and where it's headed doesn't depend on Abraham. It really doesn't depend on us. Right. I mean, not to count us out, but I, I think we all believe in God's providence and, and God's guidance. Not that we always understand that. Brian, I think your uh, inner critic, I love that so much. Would justification theory say that if you're lucky, Jesus will become your inner critic. If you say a prayer, right. If you say a prayer, you can have Jesus as your very own inner critic. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's so easy to just keep your old inner critic when you use that model, right? Jesus is made in your image, and then he, he, he's your inner critic. He's your inner critic, Jesus. I don't want to overuse that term, but I, yeah, I'll follow your train of thought there. Jesus is your superego. That's a big help, Brian. Yeah. I don't want to oversimplify it, but I thought that was useful too when it came out in some uh, conversations this week. And I hope everybody knows that, that we're talking about real radical evil in this system when it goes wrong. And that's, you know, I think this is also the insight of Lacanian psychoanalysis that Zizek and company are picking up. They are the, the, some of the few that are taking evil as seriously as I think we should. But of course, the way that this evil arises is in conjunction with the obscene superego. In other words, if we imagine that this thing is Jesus, or it is God, and it begins to give you commands, <laughs> I hesitate to say this, but the in the name of religion, the worst sorts of evil gets done. Because people have totally reified, deified, in, in many instances, 
what they imagine their religion constitutes. And I think if we've understood faith as it should be constituted, we will never be guilty of that kind of absolutizing, ontologizing, whatever the structure might be, whether it's the cultural structures, whether it's the institutional church, whether it's law. In other words, I think that's what faith does for us. We understand the dynamic of truth and the truth of Christ and the way that it functions. We are homeless in this sense. There's a, a great uh, couple of verses in chapter 1 that demonstrates the dynamic and a personal aspect of it. It's 11 and 12, where Paul says, I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. And it's almost like he catches himself and says, that is that, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, that each of us by one another's faith, yours and mine, that he wants to be clear that it's it's not a, just a one-way street. It's not, he's just imparting something that, yeah, it's a dynamic of relationship from him, even to immature Christians, that he is submitting himself to uh, hearing from God through them. Yeah, even on the part of the, of the apostle, there's this humility. And, and of course, once we get it, how could it be otherwise? Because humility is the very, that's the very essence of this faith. The prideful assurance that we may instill in our, I've certainly been guilty of it, it, it is over and against the very tenor of faith. That's not what faith is. It is this humble, you're, you're being presented with, in other words, reality is unfolding for all of us. That's what we're talking about in the end. We're talking about, are we encountering and dealing with reality, or are we dealing with a false reality? And I think that true faith then enables us to take into account reality as, you know, the reality of God, the reality of ourselves, and the reality of the world. And I don't know how else to bring those things together. All right. Is everybody happy? Okay. Uh, next week, I hope Jonathan Depew then can lay out for us the precedent uh, that Campbell is working with. I think he's going to focus on that. If any of you have other questions you'd like to raise, we'll give him a chance to, to prepare because he seems quite earnest in his preparation. Okay, I appreciate you guys. Good to see everybody, and see you next week. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Paul. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.